thank Eric for the reminder and Jason for the songs that we're singing. It is indeed a blessing for us to be together. I count it a great blessing to be in the presence of all of you here, to have these Bibles in our hands so easily, to have the Word of God right before us. When there are some who are struggling to hear the Word of God in other places, some who are needing the Word of God in other places, some right here who need the Word of God in our own communities. And we've been blessed by having this right before our eyes and on our hearts. What a great opportunity we have to worship God, to thank Him in the beauty of holiness for all He's done for us. I'm grateful for your presence here with us today. What an encouragement it is to me to see you here, to know there are those online with us, some who are struggling, who are having a hard time with their health, and yet they're tuned in, they're, they're with us because they want to worship as best they can. There are others who will be tuning in later, perhaps, to listen to these lessons, and we appreciate uh, what that says about you as well, that you're searching for God. We want to help you find Him. We want to help you see His will for your life. The only way we can do that is to open our Bible, so I encourage you to open your Bibles with me. We looked at this first passage in Exodus 3. We'll be coming back to that in a moment. In a few moments, we'll be looking through some other texts here. I want to start with a question as we see Moses has come here before the Lord, and the Lord told him to take his sandals off because he's on holy ground. I want to ask you how much attention you paid to your feet. It seemed like an odd question, perhaps. It's something I've been thinking about lately after a lesson I heard not too long ago. The thing is, we don't typically think about our feet very much unless they're really dirty. We've been out doing something and they're just nasty and we're going to come in. Something Pittsburghers do that is kind of new to me is everybody takes their shoes off when you come to the house. So I like that. It's a new trend for me, but we really actually are getting into that. I like being barefoot in the house now. But we don't think about that too much normally unless we've been out walking around in the snow or in the mud or something. And then, oh, my feet are pretty dirty. Or if you ever stepped on a Lego, you think about your feet all of a sudden. That is the worst pain. I don't know why. That's the thing that hurts so bad. But if your feet are really achy, you think about them. If you've been out walking a lot during the day or standing a lot, you think about your feet. But normally, we just don't give much attention to our feet, most of us. There are some who do. Some who go to great lengths and pay a good amount of money to care for their feet. It's not because they're just thinking about their feet so much, but they like to take care of themselves. <laughs> I reminded of Miss Barbara when she was here the other day with all those different colored nails. It was beautiful thing to see. I was recently home with my mom, and she had had a pedicure for the first time in her life. And she was amazed how expensive it was. She didn't pay for it. My sister paid for it for her. And she got this enamel done, and it looked really nice. And my mom's feet, they don't get dirty and nasty. She stays in the house most of the time. But some people will go out of their way to take care of their feet. But really, mostly, we don't pay much attention to our feet. And I wonder how many, how many of us would ever say that our feet are beautiful. <laughs> or you would say that about somebody else's feet. Those are beautiful feet. And yet, that's a biblical concept. And it's something that, in our studies in Romans, has come up. In Romans chapter 10, I want to remind you of something that Paul says here in the context of preaching the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And this idea that God has made His Word knowable, that it's not far from us, that we can know it, it's in our own hearts. And he says, verse 15 of Romans 10, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How beautiful are the feet? And I ask you, how beautiful are your feet? And I'd like to take a few moments today to analyze this issue of feet as they're presented to us in the Bible. This was an interesting study for me as I went through this. There will be several we won't look at, but we'll look at several 
of this, what I call a history of feet in the Old Testament to begin with, I want you to sort of notice something. From what we saw here with Moses, we'll get to that one in a moment, but really we can begin this analysis back in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, after Adam and Eve have been made, made for each other and brought together, we're told they were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But then after they ate from the tree that was forbidden, verse 7 of chapter 3 says, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If we go down a little bit further, down to verse 21, we find that for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And finally, in verse 24, he drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What does that have to do with feet? Well, may have been implied there. They were created naked. <laughs> they were barefoot in the garden in God's presence. It's only after sin that God then clothes them and kicks them out of the garden where they're going to have to worry about walking on thorns. <laughs> and they're going to need some kind of covering also for their feet. But in the garden, in the presence of God, they're barefoot. I want you to just kind of be picturing these images, and we're going to build sort of a, a, an argument here. Also in Genesis chapter 3, as God is handing down the sentence on the serpent, in verse 15 he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I like the Christian standard. I think the New American standard also says this, you shall strike his heel. Well, when you think about what that means, in the image of someone stomping on the head of a serpent and their heel getting stricken, you can't do that through a boot. <laughs> I think that implies there's a bare foot coming down on the head of this serpent <laughs> and the heel is getting stricken there. Now, maybe that's stretching things a little too far. The point is, there will be a wound from the serpent but the serpent's is a fatal wound, and it's only a heel wound on the one who does the crushing. But I think there's an implication, perhaps, of a bare foot here. And then we see the one where Moses has come to God at Horeb, and he's seen the burning bush, and he comes up, and as he draws near, God says, don't, wait, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off, because you're standing on holy ground. Isn't it interesting? God wanted Moses to be barefoot, as he came into his presence. He wanted the contact with Moses on this holy ground. Also interesting, this is the first time that this word holy is used in the Bible. We see the verb form of this word in uh, Genesis 2 and verse uh, 4, uh, Genesis 2 verse 3, when God uh, sanctified the Sabbath. That is the verb form of this word. But the first time we see the word actually holy is here. <laughs> And Moses is told, remove your shoes. I want you to come before me barefoot on the holy ground. And he does. And now I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 28. I want to look at the priestly garments here. As Moses is now before God actually on the mountain receiving the instruction. And here's the instruction for the garments for the priests. Exodus 28, the first five verses there. Now take Aaron, your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, who I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, 
that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. That's supposed to be just through verse 4 there. Did you notice something about all those garments? Something conspicuously absent there. Shoes. They were not to make any garments for their feet. They were to attend to the duties of priesthood barefoot in God's presence. Are you seeing sort of a theme here? Harkening back to the presence of God in the garden, in nature. They're not naked. In fact, they're told to cover their nakedness because sin has come in. Even undergarments are made so that if their robe were to lift up as they raise their leg, their nakedness is covered. And yet, God insisted that they be barefoot. There's a vestige still of that communication with God as they're coming into the presence barefoot. And then in prophecy, at least a couple of times, we get this concept of feet being visible. Isaiah 52. This is a couple of chapters, Isaiah 52 and 53, that we know well. 53 speaking of the suffering servant. But 52 speaking of the message that's coming before that servant, really all the way back from Isaiah 40, where we get the message about the one who's going to pave the way. Uh, John the Baptist, later we find out. But in Isaiah 52, verse 7, here's the verse that Paul has quoted in Romans chapter 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In the context in Isaiah, we have the people of Judah that have been taken to captivity in Babylon. And he's saying that captivity is not going to last forever. There is one who's going to come and proclaim to you good news that you'll be able to return. Now, there's an immediate fulfillment of that as they come out of the physical captivity back to Jerusalem. And this, this one has come from the mountains, from the high places in Judah, has come and announced freedom and liberty to the, uh, to the uh, captives there in, uh, uh, in Babylon. But as Paul uses it in Romans chapter 10, he's speaking of another kind of liberty, of freedom from sin. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. It's interesting that there's a parallel passage that we don't think about as much in Nahum. In Nahum chapter 1, in the older versions, it was in Nahum chapter 2, but I think most of our modern versions have this as Nahum chapter 1. Um, if I can find it here, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, there we go. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. I'm singing the song in my head. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is actually an oracle against Nineveh. It's against Assyria. Judah had been uh, pent up and thought they were going to lose uh, at the time, but Israel was taken off into captivity and Judah was spared and God was sparing them. And there's one coming, this, uh, this one announcing that no more will they be troubled by Assyria. That's kind of interesting that we get this both in the context of the Assyrian captivity and of the captivity from Babylon if we put Isaiah and Nahum together. And yet you have the feet of the one on the mountains. Now think about how we might have said that. When we think of someone proclaiming the good news, we think of the mouth. Or we think of the message that they've taken their time to pour over. But God both times says, how beautiful are the feet. 
And I believe there's an implication that we're going to be building toward as we look at this. That there is a message that needs to be taken somewhere. You can yell a message a certain distance, but you can take it further if you take your feet and yell everywhere you go with your feet. So it's the feet that become so beautiful because the messenger was willing to go a great length to bring this message to me. In the end, that's what we'll be looking at. So the feet of the proclaimer are specifically called to attention here. And it's interesting that in the context, both in Isaiah and Nahum, it's the feet upon the mountains. Are they coming from the presence of God, coming down from the mountain as maybe Moses had done before? There are some who suggest even that Eden itself would have been on a mountaintop since all the rivers flow from there. And this typology of God's mountain raised above all the others, it's a good possibility there. That even the temple mount represents Eden. Certainly the temple itself does. It's an interesting thing to think about. Perhaps this messenger coming barefoot then from the presence of God on his holy mountain, bringing this message of liberty to the captives. So in the Old Testament, we certainly see an emphasis on feet. You may not have noticed that before. I hadn't really until I began to think about this lesson. But with Adam and Eve, with the promised seed, with Moses himself, with the priests, and then in prophetic mention of the one who is bringing the good news, has these beautiful feet. It doesn't say the beautiful shoes or the beautiful boots. There's bare feet involved somehow. And that's what's visible. And that's what's precious to the one who's receiving the message. Here comes the messenger. It is interesting, even in Greek mythology, when you think about the messenger, he had wings on his feet <laughs> because that's how he was going to swiftly carry the message. They didn't have electronic devices. They couldn't send it along the wire. Someone had to carry the message and had to be fleet of foot to do that. And so there's beauty in the feet of the messenger. But what about feet in the New Testament? You probably knew that was coming. Well, let's consider what's said in the New Testament. In John chapter 13, <laughs> chapter we know well, Something I'd never had thought about until I began to make the connection with this particular look in this study. John chapter 13, let's read verses 1 through 10. Context here is uh, the Last Supper. Jesus is together with the apostles. He knows it's his last night of life, and he's spending his time with them, and he's preparing them with the last things he's going to be able to say to them. John chapter 13. Now before the, peace, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Later in this same context, in the same conversation in chapter 15, he'll tell them again that they're clean. Verse 3, You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. There's cleansing in the word. Jesus has given them the word. He's been teaching them all of this time. He's now teaching them an example 
But what I think is fascinating is as he's had this last moment to prepare them for the mission they're going to carry forward of taking his message of salvation, where does he focus? He washes their feet. Isn't that interesting? We're told specifically that he washed their feet. I want to suggest to you that Jesus wants them to be men of beautiful feet. Now certainly in their Jewish mind, they're recalling these scriptures, how beautiful are the feet upon the mountains of the one who proclaims liberty. That's what they're about to proclaim. Jesus has said, you're taking this message. Later, he'll tell them specifically that they're to go and take this message to the world. But he's been telling them that in this context, he'll tell them more. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, he'll begin to tell them about the Holy Spirit coming and empowering them to be the witness and to give this message and remember all things that he's taught them and reveal all the new ones as well. But the apostles were clean except for their feet, and Jesus washed them for the task. I want you to go with me to look at the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. We know this text. God willing, in a few weeks, I'll be preaching on the armor of God by request from someone. And I think it's a beautiful text to look at. Sometimes we only think about it in connection with children's classes. But the armor of God here is written for adults, people who are struggling in their service to the Lord in this spiritual battle. But I want you to notice something about the armor. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." So it's a spiritual warfare that we're in. We have spiritual armor, and we see a shield, helmet, we see a breastplate, we see armor, but we don't see boots. Isn't that interesting? Conspicuously absent now from the priestly armor are shoes of any kind. What The preparation of the gospel is what is, what is on the feet. We don't say the boots of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? The text doesn't say that. It does say there's a shield. It says these other items of the armor. And yet, it's almost like the spiritual warrior is battling barefoot in the presence of God. I thought that was striking. I'd never noticed that before. I'd always imagined boots of gospel. But that's not what it says. It says the preparation of the gospel and the sword of the Spirit. The armor of God conspicuously has no boots. And then we saw in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, that those who bring the glad tidings have their feet mentioned. It is interesting that Paul's citation here of Isaiah 52 and verse 7, as he cites there, he leaves out the mountains. Obviously, he's preaching this message from Mount Zion. That's where the truth came from. Maybe he doesn't mention it for that reason. And the word he uses for beautiful here 
can be translated beautiful, but mostly it's translated appropriate or timely. Some translations have that. How timely are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace? He's the same writer who will say in Galatians chapter 4, at the opportune time, or at the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And that's the idea here. Those who preach the gospel have beautiful and powerful feet who come at the right time with the message of salvation. Why do I say powerful feet? Did you ever notice in Romans 16 and verse 20 what Paul tells the Roman saints there as they're having their deliberations and their struggles? The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. <laughs> under your feet. I thought they were going to be crushed by, by, by the Christ's feet. They are. How? <laughs> through His body, through the church, through the preaching of the gospel. Those who take the word and proclaim it have beautiful and powerful feet for crushing out Satan. What a beautiful image. And the final image I want us to look at in the New Testament is of the Lord Himself. In Romans, in Revelation chapter 1, sorry, Revelation chapter 1, this image of the glorified Christ. Here's the Lord as He is today. Seen by one who was so intimate with Him He could lean against Him at the table at the Last Supper. This is John when he sees him now, he falls as a dead man at his feet. This is overwhelming for one who knew him intimately while he was here. Read 1 John. We, we touched him. We held him. We beheld him. We, we want to proclaim to you the one we know. We, we've touched him. And yet he sees Jesus here and falls down like a dead man. This is not the same Jesus he knew in the flesh. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me like the sound of trumpets in many waters. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. His feet are like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. I used to work for a time selling candles. And at the time, there's probably something that's come along that's, that's more in vogue now, but at the time, everybody wanted brass candle holders because they were, they're heavy. <laughs> and you can put a candle in them and parts of them can, can move the, the holder and the candle won't turn over. It won't move because of the weight and the beauty. You can polish the brass. Jesus has these feet that are solid, that are pure. They've been refined as brass here. These are perfect for striking the dragon, as who we'll see in the book of Revelation, that serpent of old from Genesis chapter 3. As he crushes that serpent under feet with a brass heel, that strike's not going to do much damage at all. Of course, we're seeing the resurrected Lord by the time we get to the book of, uh, of Revelation. So we've got this picture here of these perfect, pure feet in the presence of God, in the glorified Lord. So there's a lot of consideration of feet in the Bible, if you hadn't thought about that before, both in the old and the new. Well, where does that leave us? How beautiful are your feet? That font didn't take, that was a beautiful, beautiful, by the way, on the, on the original font there. Uh, so how beautiful are your feet? That's where we started. 
you ever think about the beauty of your feet? I want to ask a few questions as we look at this history of feet in the Bible. First off, are your feet holy because they've been in the presence of God? That's where Jesus wants us. God told Moses, take off your sandals and come into my presence barefoot. We've been made priests in Jesus' service, and the priests serve barefoot. Now, that's not literal. But this idea of our feet being holy. First off, because we're willing to go into God's presence to receive the Word of God. That's what Moses was doing when he came to to him on the mountain. In Exodus chapter 3, he came close. He was going to see what's going on. He was amazed by the burning bush. But then later, we're not specifically told that he's barefoot, but in Exodus chapter 24, he goes up into the mountain, into the presence of God, starting at verse 12. Lord said to Moses, Exodus 24, verse 12, Come up to me on the mountain and be there. I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He's up there in the presence of God, receiving the word of God. We've got to come into the presence of God if we're going to receive his word. He's opened himself to us. He sent his son to tabernacle among us, John says in his gospel. He's bridged the gap. Will we come into his presence to receive the word of God? And if so, will that make our feet holy? As priests in Leviticus chapter 10, as they're going about their service barefoot in the presence of God, part of their work was to be discerners and teachers of the word of God. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 8, the Lord spoke to Aaron after the death of Nadab and Abihu, who weren't cautious before the Lord, spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and here's why, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Our feet can be made holy as we're receiving the word of God and discerning in the word of God what is clean from what is unclean. And as we proclaim His praises, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I've already mentioned that Jesus has made us priests in His service, but that's what 1 Peter tells us so clearly. This man who also knew Jesus intimately, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verses 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We have a service to perform as priests as we are receiving and discerning that word and we proclaim the praises of the one who called us into this holiness as we stand barefoot before him ministering. 
with the beauty of our feet, made beautiful by His Word and His message. Romans 12 talks about our laying ourselves down as a living sacrifice, but I'd rather go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 with you quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 15, thinking of our priesthood being in the temple, in the service of our Lord. And Paul says here, what, what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Those verses 17 and 18 at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, they're the continuation of Isaiah 52, where he began talking about the beautiful feet on the mountains. And then he says, come out from among them. I'm calling you to liberty. Come out from the Babylonians. Come out from the Assyrians. Come out from your sin and from your contamination with the world. The one who has beautiful feet is calling. The one who has holy feet from being in the presence of the Lord. Are your feet beautiful because they're holy? Are your feet prepared with the gospel of peace? Would you say you have beautiful feet because they're prepared with the gospel of peace. We looked at Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to notice in verse 10, he says, brethren. He doesn't say, you who are men. He'll say that in other places in Ephesians. But here he says, you who are Christians. We're all in this battle together. This armor that I want you to take on for this spiritual warfare is appropriate for both men and women. In the Old Testament, it was the men that went off into battle. In the New Testament, the spiritual warfare is waged by men and women in the same congregation. All disciples should have on this armor that includes having their feet prepared with the gospel of peace. And why such an emphasis on feet? I've already mentioned this, the idea of coming down from the mountain. The idea is that the feet are to take the battle to the enemy. He didn't say, make sure you've got a holy seat because you sit in the same seat every time on Sunday or because you're really good at telling people to come to where you are. The, the gospel is a message that needs to be taken to people. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. In Mark chapter 16, he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, literally is what he says there. Because all creation has been damaged by sin and needs to hear the gospel. Feet are to take the battle to the enemy and we are to be going. Now sometimes we think, well, it's just going to be bothering people. I just keep going and talking about the Lord. People don't want to hear about that. The Lord says that they're going to say how beautiful your feet are. None of us is here by chance. The Lord can be recognized as creator by looking at the creation. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. We can understand that there is a God and we can be held uh, 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 guilty by not recognizing that there's a God. We can also understand there's a certain morality by the conscience that's in us. Romans chapter 2, he talks about the Gentiles who are able to judge between right and wrong. But that doesn't tell us personally about how to overcome that guilt once we've judged ourselves to have acted wrongly. For that, the gospel is needed. And the gospel is not something that's intuitive just by looking at nature. The gospel is a message that is told by those who've heard it and have embraced it. We must go. <laughs> Our feet must be prepared to take this gospel wherever we go and to share it with others. And we may intentionally go places we wouldn't normally go so that we can share it with others. Are your feet beautiful 
as in have you prepared them with the gospel of peace? Some people spend a lot of money painting their feet to make them look nice. I'm not talking about that. How much have you invested in your feet by preparing yourself with the gospel of peace? And finally, are your feet crushing the head of the serpent? Sometimes we don't go because it's convicting when we start telling other people about things that we ourselves are not doing. (laughs) I don't want to teach them about this because they'll look at me and say, well, you don't do that either. How convicting is that? (laughs) We need to be crushing the head of the serpent with our feet. And our feet are beautifully made for that purpose. We saw that in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It's God who will crush the serpent under our feet if we'll do what He says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's a beautiful verse. It's both convicting and comforting. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is empowering us to be able to stomp on the head of the serpent. In Philippians chapter 2, perhaps more well known than that verse, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. In our own lives, if we're crushing out the head of the serpent, our feet are becoming beautiful for the service of preaching the gospel. Let's be preparing ourselves that we'll have an answer ready to give to those who ask us for the hope that they see us bringing when they see our beautiful feet coming upon the mountain. Would you say the person who brought you the gospel had beautiful feet? If you understand what they brought you, you absolutely think the fact that they came to you at all is a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean they looked good. It means what they do is a beautiful thing. Their feet are beautiful. How beautiful are yours? (laughs) Maybe your feet are not beautiful. (laughs) Maybe you recognize both spiritually and physically, you just don't have beautiful feet. But if your feet are not beautiful, I ask you to consider why is that the case? God wants His proclaimers of His Word to have beautiful feet. (laughs) He prepared Moses who thought, I can't do this. He prepared him for it. He said, I gave you a mouth. I'll give you the words. I've given you feet. Go. And Moses went. He prepared a seed to stomp out the head of the serpent. He prepared priests to intervene between God and man. He prepared the prophets to pave the way with this word. And many of them walked long distances, paid heavy tolls with their own lives. He prepared the apostles He's given us armor. He's given us the gospel itself. And He's empowered us to crush out Satan, to bring a word of truth, and to reach out in holiness to those who need it more than anything else. If your feet are not beautiful, why are they not beautiful? Respond to the Lord. If you're a Christian and your feet are not beautiful, you've got work to do. You need to be allowing the Lord to change who you are by spending more time in His presence by stomping out Satan in your life, by his power, and by preparing yourself to share this good news with others. If you're not a Christian, it's understandable why your feet are not beautiful. You don't have the message that you need, but there are some beautiful feet coming your way with a message of peace. Respond to it. Understand the beauty that God has provided for you. Hear that the Lord is Christ, that He gave His life for you, and that if you're willing to come forward, confess that He's the Son of God, 
repentant of your sins, have them washed away in baptism, you can begin a beautiful life this day in His presence. We'd love to help you with any of those needs, whatever they are. Would you make them known to us? We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage your decision.